Hello everybody and welcome to Floor Fight, the Post Riders serialized podcast in which each season we assemble a politics bracket and pit our contestants against each other to crown the ultimate winner. I'm your host and your announcer, Michael DeVito. Thanks, Mike, and I'm your other host and your floor manager, Lars Emerson. Welcome to the podcast and to the exciting brawl we have before us. We finished round one last episode, so we now have 32 entries remaining. Welcome to round two, everyone. The round of 32, as they call it, in the NCAA tournament. But we're not dealing with basketball teams here, and said we are dealing with losing presidential candidates. At the premise of our first season is to pit lots of, not each one, because there are too many. There's like literally, literally hundreds, if not thousands, of losing presidential it, candidates. Kanye West is not in here. No, he is not. Point is, we're pitting the most important ones against each other in this bracket to try and answer the question of who was the greatest president we never had this time we're gonna win we're in a race we're gonna win this we will wage a winning campaign in every region of this country and then we will win let there be no doubt my friends we're going to win this election we're fighting for the american future and Reminder for our listeners how this works. You sat with us through round one, so I hope you remember. But we started with 56 runners-up in the competitive U.S. presidential races, plus 16 of the top third and fourth place finishers. Eight of those won their play-in games and made it into round one. All candidates were seeded based on the percentage of the popular vote. So Samuel Tilden is still standing. He was our top number one seed. He received 50.9% of the popular vote, but of course he lost the electoral college and the presidency. So he was the losing candidate with the largest vote share and therefore our top seed. As we go through each matchup, we'll introduce the candidate, the year, their seed, who they were bested by, and give some context. Then Mike and I will debate the merits of each before crowning that round's champion. If we cannot agree, we will flip a coin because... You know, we like to settle things Virginia style here on this yeah. podcast. Draw some lots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Thanks, Lars, and thank you to the listener. Yes, you, who can follow along with our live updating bracket on our website. Just go to thepostwriter.com slash floorfight to see the seeds, victors, upcoming matches to follow along with us each step of the way. Now, we'll, we'll review in, in, in many ways in, in our upcoming matchups sort of what happened last round, but if you look at sort of the, the types of folks who advanced into this round in this, this first half of round two, if you will, we have both candidates who lost to Ronald Reagan. We also have the candidate who lost to his successor, H.W. Bush. In fact, we have lots of candidates who lost to post-war Republicans like Donald Trump and Richard Nixon and George W. Bush. But... We also have both opponents of Barack Obama. We have the man who lost to James K. Polk, who was a very early Democrat, as well as one of William McKinley's foes, which he really only had one, which was William Jennings Bryan, but <laughs> it was one version of William Jennings Bryan. So yeah, that, that's, that's what we're dealing with. So let's dive right into uh, half one. Thanks, Mike. All right, let's get started. So we mentioned Samuel Tilden right at the top. He is our number one seed. He beat uh, James B. Weaver uh, in round one, and he is matched off against George H.W. Bush, who uh, defeated Andrew Jackson in round one, and George H.W. Bush is number eight seed. So let me tell you about Tilden. You may remember he was a New York Democrat. 
in the election of 1876, he was the, the Democratic candidate for president against the Republican governor of Ohio, Rutherford B. Hayes. Tilden had gone after machine politics in New York. He ran as kind of a, a reform candidate against corruption in the outgoing Grant administration, whereas Hayes emphasized the danger of letting Democrats in charge of the country again after, you know, the Civil War. Uh, this was the election that we dubbed and has been dubbed by many historians as the most disputed election of all time. There were widespread allegations of voter fraud and more. There were there was an elector declared illegal, and there was this big compromise of 1877, in which Hayes would become president, but federal troops would be withdrawn from the South, and Reconstruction would end. Yeah, and he'll be facing off against, as you said, Lars George Herbert Walker Bush, who was actually president of the United States, but he would lose re-election in 1992 with only 37% of the vote to Bill Clinton. Of course, he only won such a paltry share because there was another major candidate, Ross Perot, who has already been eliminated from this bracket. The thing about George H.W. Bush is that he promised not to raise taxes, but then he, in fact, did raise taxes. Arguably for the best of the country, but people were still upset that he lied, especially conservatives in the Republican Party, especially Pat Buchanan, who actually ran against him in the primary. And Bush, anyway, was actually considered more moderate than Reagan and his cohort. Actually, there was a movement to get Reagan to replace Bush with Jack Kemp instead, who was seen, more, seen as more sufficiently conservative. The recession in 1901 certainly did not help him, but it probably didn't have a huge, huge effect on that election. Uh, he was kind of a former policy wonk, very strong in that area, essentially ended the Cold War. He won the Persian Gulf War. Um, but, you know, he he was very much a cold warrior, and uh, they decided Clinton would be better suited. They, being the American people, we, if you will, although I was not alive at the time, uh, decided Bill Clinton would be better suited to uh, take on that task. Yeah, so I, I guess I'm going to come out and say it. We gave Tilden a lot of benefit of the doubt in round one. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we had a, a pretty lengthy debate about him and Weaver, and we decided that Tilden was a number one seed. He should probably advance. Yeah. And I made the argument that Tilden kind of gives the Democratic Party this off-ramp to move past the Civil War. And like, Because Tilden's like a New York guy who went after corruption. He's not like a Southern mm. Democrat. And maybe you get a, a better Democratic Party earlier if you, you let Tilden win. Who, like, of all of these people in this bracket, certainly was the most screwed out of a presidency. Yes. I don't know. Yeah, he, he, he has the right to be the most aggrieved. Right. But this is not who has the right to be the most president. (laughs) (laughs) No, it is not. Uh, And Bush was a pretty easy clear for us because he was up against Jackson, who is, like we've said, not a friend of this show's. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And we've been kind in other podcasts we've recorded talking about presidents. We've been very kind to George H.W. Bush. I think we both prefer him to Ronald Reagan and probably to any. Well, I, I don't I won't speak for you and Nixon. But any post-Eisenhower Republican, he's certainly my favorite. I'll say that. Wow. How dare Gerald Ford. <laughs> Gerald Ford seems like a nice guy, but I think Bush was probably the better president. <laughs> yeah, he, he got us NAFTA, man. Yeah. Yes. I'm, I'm inclined to give, to give Bush the win here just right off the bat. Because, mm-hmm. like I said, we, we sort of had to push ourselves to go with Tilden, which I do think was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. Bush really is just so so interesting there is so much you can do with bush and and there are certainly a lot of criticisms of bush especially on his like social policy that i look Mm -hmm. forward to unpacking when he faces his next matchup but 
Yeah. I think this is an easy pick. Yeah, I, w- I would agree as well. The thing that goes most to his credit is that like he was not an ideologue. He was clearly like his views on things were fungible, which I guess kind of has a n- negative connotation, but he was practical, right? He was pragmatic. Right. He knew when he had a break with conservative orthodoxy and when he had to do, you know, the most practical things. So yeah, I, I think I think this is a pretty easy choice as well. All right. Sorry, Tilden. I, I guess that's enough. Foiled again. In so many ways. Though I, I think we, we forecast that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think episode. anybody. Yeah. I agree. I'm sure his ghost will, will come to get us. So Bush advances into round three. That was that was a easy early win by Bush. Mm-hmm. Let's move on. Next matchup, we have number five seed John McCain against number four seed. The first of our Jennings Bryans, William Jennings Bryan in 1896. So, uh, Arizona Republican Senator, Vietnam prisoner of war, John McCain. He was, yeah, you'll remember him well. He was a maverick from the rest of the the GOP. He often broke with his party on uh, more socially liberal or pragmatic ideals. So, in 2008, he was the uh, Republican nominee. Republicans had a very unpopular outgoing president at that time against uh, Democrat Barack Obama. McCain lost that election. He got 46% of the vote. That's, That's McCain. Yeah, and then uh, he'll be facing off against William Jennings Bryan, the 1896 vintage, who was a progressive Democrat who built this coalition around bimetallism, expanding the use of silver in the money supply. He gave the Cross of Gold speech at the 1896 Democratic Convention, considered one of the greatest political speeches in American history. He called for bimetallism in that speech to expand the money supply by allowing silver because we were still on the gold standard and argued that that's was keeping his base, which were in kind of a reversal of modern party politics. In that day, the Democratic base were rural farmer folk. He argued it was keeping them down, keeping them poor. It was considered a great orator, of course, but he would lose the 1896 election to William McKinley, the Republican. Brian would only receive 47% of the vote, but he would run twice more. So we, of course, will be talking about him a lot next episode. Yeah, gold standard, uh, I, I think, has been kind of repudiated in the past, sort of. So is the silver standard, but yes. Well, yes. Also, <laughs> basically, we're, we're, we're a pro-fiat currency <laughs> yeah. podcast. So, yeah, that, that, that was William Jennings Bryan. Um I think this is a this this is maybe a little bit of a tough one. What do you think, Lars? I, I agree because we we almost hesitated on McCain when mm-hmm. when I brought up Sarah Palin. It's like we do have to consider the fact that there is a there's like a pretty good chance McCain like dies in office if he's reelected in yeah. 2012, and that's deeply terrifying. A thing we did not mention in any of the numerous times any of the Bryans came up last round. Do you know William Jennings Bryan? like only experience in government before the 1896 election yeah he was a congressman yeah for like four years <laughs> i mean abraham lincoln had a similarly thin resume yeah but are you are you comparing brian and lincoln <laughs> they were both great speakers apparently both from the midwest i guess yeah this is definitely a more difficult matchup but yeah it's definitely in some ways like an apples and oranges comparison not just because of ideology, but also because of era. My inclination is to go for Brian, though, for a few reasons. One, sure, I think obviously what you mentioned of Sarah Palin, sort of bringing her ever closer to being president is not a good thing, I don't think. Mm. And I don't think John McCain is what the country needed in 2008. I think, you know, I, I certainly respect 
his centrist attitude towards social issues, and and I I think he he ran like a very in what was a campaign that would act as prelude to lots of like ugly identity politics that would roll out <laughs> over the course of like you know the next thirteen years. I think he acquitted himself very well considering some of the questions he was being asked by people who were voting for him and just some of the issues of the day basically him being like no obama is not a muslim and also he is a good man i just think i'd be a better president like you know right hard hard to picture any of like the last four major party candidates saying anything like that partly because two of them would be correct in uh maligning (laughs) the other one if that is if that was beating around the bush enough for you but basically I just don't, you know, he, 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 he's a foreign policy guy running in a domestic issue election, which I think obviously began as a foreign policy issue election. But once the recession hits, I think it becomes more of a domestic policy thing. And you're the economist, so you can vet your own statement here that you wrote in the notes. Maybe if William Jennings Bryan is elected, the Great Depression's not as bad because he gets us off the gold standard faster. Yes, I think that is definitely true. What I'm more, most interested in is your point that McCain is not what the country needed in 2008. Because that is not actually something that, that occurred to me. And I, I, I'm not sure if you would agree, but in most of our, you know, in watching mates, in, in running mates, e- even in our episodes comparing Biden and Obama, I'm not sure that we have been a particularly friendly to Obama <laughs> team of podcasts. Yeah, it's true, we haven't. Either. We've actually been pretty hard on Yeah, which I'm, it was, I'm not saying is undeserved. It's, there, mm. there are certainly a lot of mistakes, which I think Obama himself would very much admit to. And a lot of just optimism for things that never came to happen, not necessarily mm. due to his fault. But like you don't, <laughs> you don't get to run on like hope and change, or run on building the wall, and then like not build the wall and not have people be a little upset, you know? Right. <laughs> yeah. So that that is interesting. I, I I think Brian, we mentioned quite a few times, like he was kind of right about everything. Mm-hmm. And I guess I'm more comfortable with 1896 Brian advancing than I am with like 20th century William Jennings Bryan's advancing. Yeah, if that makes sense. I, I just yeah, it, yeah. it's funny because I, I feel like Brian, you know, he he is a progressive. I feel like he's held up as this kind of high point in American progressive politics. And it's like I, I think both of us have like an, an aversion to political extremes on either side of the aisle. Like I don't think either of us was like super stoked about like George McGovern who's arguably like the most liberal nominee on here, or at least certainly one of them. But it's like, I don't think anybody would look at 1896 and say, you know what? These guys were just like too progressive, right? Right, right. <laughs> you know? And even though on social issues, Brian was, uh, you know, a little bit of a contradiction. He was, of course, the person who argued f- for the prosecution in the Scopes Monkey trial. But hmm. I think he, he would have been a fine president. Maybe no Spanish-American war either, which maybe means... You know, a different outcome in Cuba, which maybe means no Fidel Castro, you know? Uh, here, here. <laughs> maybe it means no Ferdinand Marcos in the Philippines, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I went into this kind of thinking we'd go for McCain, but I, I, I think you've talked me into this. I think Brian should advance. All right, let's do it. All right. William Jennings Brian, I guess is a name we'll be hearing in round three, too. How exciting. All right, next up, we have our third matchup of round two. We have Alton B. Parker, who is a number 11 seed, versus Charles Pinckney in 1804, who is a number 14 seed. (laughs) These are not candidates we felt particularly strongly about in round one, but let's talk. (laughs) 
Alton B. Parker was the Democrats nominee in 1904 against Theodore Roosevelt, who became president after William McKinley uh, was assassinated. Roosevelt won that election. Parker only got 37.6% of the vote, but he is the only man to ever lose to Theodore Roosevelt. <laughs> It's true. Parker was pro-gold standard. Uh, he was against imperialist policies, especially in the Philippines. But he was not particularly inspiring. He basically ran on Theodore Roosevelt being like an unstable, you know, madman. <laughs> um, and he said Roosevelt wasn't a real trustbuster. Uh, but also that that's not something that the federal government should really be handling. Yeah, that that's your top line, Alden B. Parker. So uh, Charles Coatsworth Pinckney was at some point the United States Minister to France. He was also a delegate to the Constitutional Convention, but when he was running for president, was not actually in any office. He had some military experience as well. He did not pursue an active campaign. <laughs> this was before the time of like formal nominating conventions, so a bunch of state legislatures basically decided that they would want him to be the Federalist president. He was running against Thomas Jefferson's second term, and they just kind of put him up because they had no better option. And because he was a Southerner and the Federalists were primarily Northern Party, they thought he would help bring the South into the party. Actually, he became the first presidential nominee to lose their home state. He was actually Alexander Hamilton's choice to be president in 1800 and thought he would actually should actually replace John Adams as the Federalist candidate. Pickney's big thing is that he was a uh, wealthy planter from South Carolina, and most of his policies favored wealthy planters from the South. He was a big proponent of the Fugitive Slave Act, which basically compelled people in non-slave states to return slaves to the South. He was a big proponent of using slaves in, in the calculations to determine electoral vote and, like, congressional district allocation even though they themselves could not vote of course that is the three-fifths rule he thought that the election of representatives by the popular vote was impractical not because he thought they should be selected by a panel of philosopher kings based on like some principle but because he thought they should be men of independent wealth which is also why he opposed paying senators but on the bright side you know he did feel very strongly that the senate should have a role in ratifying treaties and was a part of the compromise that helped abolish the atlantic slave trade and opposed placing a limitation on the size of the federal army so yeah that was uh the ever enthusiastic campaign of charles coatsworth pickney yeah i've been not looking forward to this matchup because mm -hmm. i feel so kind of negatively about both of these candidates yeah i think it's a pretty clear lesser of two evils choice and the lesser of two evils i think is very clearly alton b parker <laughs> yes I, I i agree i just wish i could make a I, I i have no positive arguments to make for parker other than i guess we'd want thomas jefferson to keep being president <laughs> I don't know. well i i just don't want i just don't want pinky i know jefferson was also an aristocratic slave owner right but he was at least like a small d democrat right yeah. <laughs> he believed in sort of like the dignity of the common man and he wanted there to be participatory democracy Pinckney very clearly did not right <laughs> i think if, if it was up to him you know we'd probably have a house of lords instead of a senate so right uh yeah and yeah. you know at, at least parker was against monopolies <laughs> and he wanted the philippines to be independent earlier theodore roosevelt certainly had some excesses that need to be yeah. tempered he's not wrong that <laughs> theodore roosevelt's a mm -hmm. crazy guy running around doing stuff or in his words spasmodic erratic sensational spectacular and arbitrary exactly <laughs> yeah I, I yeah i'm killing time just so we <laughs> pretend we give pinkney the benefit of the doubt but i'm 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 for it let's just give it to parker we gave him a fair shake his shake just sucked 
Yes. He he did like kind of well in round one. I think he, because he's also up in another race, right? Is he's up in 1808? Um, yes, he Actually, is. he lost that one, but yeah. Yes, he did. All right, Parker advances. Let's move on. Next up, we have number 10 seed, Walter Mondale, versus number 2 seed, Hillary Rodham Clinton. Walter Mondale, very quickly, he was the Democrats nominee against Ronald Reagan in 1984, an election that went very poorly for Democrats. Mondale won 40.6% of the vote, which is more than you probably think he won, but he only won one state, his home of Minnesota and Washington, D.C. Mondale wanted to raise taxes to reduce the budget deficit. He supported a nuclear freeze and the Equal Rights Amendment. He was just like a Minnesota liberal from from the old days. We covered him pretty extensively in round one, so that's your top line for Mondale. Yeah, I feel like he didn't really have a lot going for him outside of just being like, hey, I'm not conservative, I think was kind of his his, his (laughs) Right. (laughs) But he'll be facing off another not conservative, I would say. Well, I guess it depends who you ask. Yeah. Hillary Rodham Clinton, who was the Democratic nominee in 2016. She is one of the handful of people in this bracket who won the popular vote, uh, more specifically 48.2%, but she only won 227 electoral votes, falling to Donald Trump. So Hillary Clinton, of course, was first lady in the 1990s. She is the wife of Bill Clinton. And then after which she served as senator from New York, then secretary of state in the Obama administration. And as you noted, Lars, the first woman to ever receive the nomination for the presidency by a major party in the United States. This was, in some ways, I would say a superficial election when it comes to issues. Yeah. Um, Donald Trump, of course, had some ideas about immigration and what should be done. And Clinton just kind of ran a very broad sort of opposition to that. She also was kind of forced to pivot to oppose the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a free trade agreement with uh, some Asian nations that she had previously supported. Of course, there's the issue of her emails and what she may may not have may not have done securely or insecurely while she was Secretary of State. And there was the whole sexism issue, which of course would be discussed in any uh, election with a prominent female candidate. But was even more so emphasized given Donald Trump's generally rancid behavior towards women and the Hollywood access tape in which he bragged to Billy Bush, nephew of George W. Bush and grandson of George H.W. Bush, (laughs) about uh, groping women. But it was not enough to have him lose. So this is interesting, right? I feel like so far, these are the two closest in time period we've been talking about, for this episode at least. <laughs> definitely. <laughs> uh, that is definitely true. All the rest of these people have been separated by like 100 years. I mean, they are, I would say, the most significant figures in Republican politics in the last 50 years have been Ronald Reagan and Donald, Donald Trump, from a leadership standpoint. I mean, like, no, yeah, no, I think, you're, I think you're absolutely correct, yeah. Uh, the Republican Party looks very different post-Trump, and it looks very different post-Reagan. There's no mm. one else I can really say that about, even though I think George W. Bush did the most to the party. Like, I don't know, I feel like... Well, he, I think, had the most significant effect, the most negative effect. Yes. To um, the extent that, and I think most Republicans would agree with you, yeah. So so this is an interesting contrast in that regard, right? Is is mm. <laughs> you can kill the Reagan presidency in the least winnable election in like history yes. other than like Washington's election or you can just stop Donald Trump from ever ever becoming president. 
Yeah, so I'm obviously sympathetic to that last point, <laughs> as I assume you are too. But it does, be, you know, it does make me worry a little bit that if we use that as a standard, oh, you're preventing this person's presidency, then I feel like then that means Hillary Clinton's just going to win it all, right? Sure, and but I'm prepared to make a very, very passionate case for why Hillary Clinton would have been a better president than Walter Mondale. Let's hear it then. <laughs> okay, let's start with the fact that Walter Mondale is by some miracle of miracles getting elected president in 1984 mm-hmm. what <laughs> i don't even know what the reaction <laughs> in the country is at that point you have a republican senate at that time mondale is not like a particularly well-liked guy he's mm-hmm. he's run this campaign saying he's going to raise taxes i think his policies fall completely flat and I am not sure, and I'm not a fan of Reagan's foreign policy either, I'm not sure if Mondale is like, I guess he was vice president, but he does not strike me as like an experienced foreign policy hand. He may be equally as experienced as Reagan in 1980, but Mm -hmm. Reagan clearly has more foreign policy experience in 1984. Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton, the nation was very prepared to have become president, whether they Mm -hmm. liked her or not. She would have won a lot of people just been like, yep, she won. I also just think it's a more powerful thing to have happen i think the first woman president defeating donald trump is a big deal (laughs) you know she had a policy she would not have had a republican senate or house either presumably though you could make an argument that if if hillary clinton has won you know the democrats get a little closer in a couple races yeah i like yeah i would say if if she wins then Russ Feingold probably wins. Right. Um, and who knows what downstream effect that has on, on the House, too. Right. I mean, from a presidency standpoint, I think you could make an argument that no one in the 21st century would have been more prepared to like go into office and start acting. And I think Joe Biden is a, is a good case for that, too, other than the fact that he was blocked from getting transition funds and stuff, and mm-hmm. his opponent hadn't conceded. And also, like, Joe Bi- Biden was walking into a shit show. Hillary Clinton would have been walking into a situation where she could be, like, prepared to govern and there was no, like, national crisis unfolding. Do I think that she handles COVID better than Donald Trump? Yes. Do I think she handles Black Lives Matter protests and the George Floyd protests better than Donald Trump? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I see Clinton losing then in 2020, but I I do not see that as a compelling reason. I just think she would have been a much more competent person able to govern and especially engage in foreign policy issues from 2017 to 2021 than Mondale would have been from 85 to 89. Yeah, no, I agree. And I, what I think you have too is people love to sort of you know, throw around the whole Dems in disarray narrative, right? This idea that they can never get everyone in line and get everyone to agree on things. And they're kind of just like this very big, unwieldy coalition that can never figure out like a coherent plan of governing. Maybe that is true in 2022. I think that was much more true in 1984. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Because you had the Walter Mondale style liberals, and then you had the more moderate to conservative Democrats in the House, right? Right. The House was under Democratic control for so long, not because everybody loved, you know, Humphrey and Mondale style liberalism. It was because there were lots of Southern Democrats who just had not changed their party yet and probably agreed on certain like New Deal style policies, but definitely on social issues were not on the same page. So I think that Mondale, he, he offers just the same, I think, kind of muddled and confused and trying to make everybody happy approach that 
like Sutton Carter. Maybe with a little bit more of like a deliberately liberal bent. I don't know that Mondale would have ever made a lot of the more belligerently like austerity focused statements that Carter did. I just don't think it's his style and probably also not his ideology. But I think, you know, what's the what's the Clinton plan of governance? It's just the third Obama term, right? For lack of a, to be as reductive as possible. It's like, we've been doing things this way. We're probably going to keep doing them the same way. We'll make some changes, sure. But like, we, we have a power structure. We have a blueprint. We, we know what direction we want to go in. Right. So they're just more vision, I think. And even though it's a campaign I've criticized in the past for not having enough vision, there is still more than Walter Mondale, I think. Yes. I also think if you just look at what the campaigns meant to the average American, there aren't a lot of people out there going like, rah, rah, Mondale. And I'm probably including Mondale in that. I think Hillary Clinton's campaign like meant a lot more to the American Mm -hmm. people, or certainly a large portion of the American people, than Mondale's. Yeah. That's my case for why... I think Clinton should advance as a she would have been a better president. I would agree. I've just noticed, too, that all of the tickets with female nominees on either the top or the bottom are on this side of the bracket. McCain, oh, Palin, oh, yeah. Mondale, Ferraro, and Clinton King. Yeah, that that is true. And we're, we're halfway through with this first half of round two. So should we take a commercial break, Mike? If you're enjoying Floor Fight, be sure to check out the podcast that started it all, Running Mates. It's the podcast where Mike and I went through every modern presidential election through the lens of vice presidential picks. Not only that, but we made our case for who would have been a better pick each cycle and where and how vice presidential picks could make a difference each election. Could Hillary Clinton have won in 2016 if she picked a different running mate? Could Al Gore have won in 2000 if he picked a different running mate? That's the premise of Running Mates, which you can find on thepostwriter.com or everywhere podcasts are found. Subscribe and run through every election from 1968 to 2020 with an emphasis on that second name on the ticket. And we're back for the second part of our first half of round two. Let's get started with another number one seed. So we have Al Gore. He advanced against 16 seed William Crawford last round and he is up against number nine seed hubert humphrey this round al gore he was from tennessee he was a democrat he was vice president under bill clinton in the 90s gore very easily got the democrats nomination in 2000 against republican george w bush the main issues of that campaign are tax policy social security and medicare reform we talked about how tilden is probably the man like most deserving of the presidency just based on how like he was screwed out of it uh, al gore is a close yeah, second i would say so <laughs> you, you know the story uh gore won the popular vote there was a giant clusterfuck in florida there there's a recount supreme court had to kind of decide to stop the recount and gore lost the electoral college oh yeah gore, gore was kind of running as like a a second bill clinton uh probably a little more left-leaning certainly more certainly more family oriented which was just a probably a reaction to the scandals in the later clinton presidency yeah how about humphrey these guys are close <laughs> yeah, in so- time too yeah 
They are, yeah. Hubert Horatio Humphrey was Lyndon B. Johnson's vice president, and he was the Democratic nominee for president in 1968. He would lose in a three-person race, but he'd come in second, though. He finished ahead of George Wallace, thank God. But he would lose to Richard Nixon, only taking 42.7% of the vote, or 191 electoral votes. So Humphrey, you know, very liberal guy, very liberal on civil rights, very much a New Deal Democrat. But the thing that I think upset a lot of more progressive people in the Democratic Party was that he was also very much in support of the Vietnam War, even though he did want to sort of uh, stop some of the bombings and kind of change how we were fighting. He did, in fact, want to send more troops and increase defense spending by 4%, but he still had the backing of labor unions and kind of everyday people. Like I said, he was very pro-civil rights. He did support actually a nuclear test ban treaty, and he wanted to expand the Great Society and the War on Poverty. He ran on a platform of what he called the Politics of Joy, which, if you know anything about 1968, was not a very joyful year in America, so I guess he didn't really feel the tenor of the times, and he ended up losing. That he did, but now we give him a chance again. Yes. Um, you, you're a pretty pro-Humphrey guy, Mike. I am. I think he would make a very good president. I think he would have helped... Maybe I'm being naive by saying this, but I think he would have sort of, like, taken a pretty, like, active and necessary role in enforcing like when people talk about civil rights right i feel like there's this this tendency maybe to be like oh like brown versus board of ed was decided school segregation over right <laughs> civil rights act passed voting rights act passed boom racism over i mean obviously we know that's not the case but what i think don't we don't necessarily realize is like those were like very long and drawn out processes to try and like ameliorate those issues like the school integration alone was a highly, highly, highly contentious issue. Even in ostensibly liberal cities like Boston, there were little literal riots about how to desegregate schools, or in fact, whether or not to do it at all in Boston. Hmm. Which, I mean, if you look at the way Boston votes, it would be surprising. If you've ever spoken to a person in Boston, maybe not. Am I right? Um, <laughs> that was very mean, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. So, yeah, I think that he would have been the perfect bridge between the New Deal coalition and into what the Democratic Party would eventually become. I see that. I, I see Humphrey as like a compromise candidate in 68. He also like kind of didn't run. <laughs> In yeah. That, in that primary? No, he didn't, because primaries were kind of, like, new. <laughs> right. Well, they, they weren't the, the primaries as we know them now. Right. And, you know, you, you have Eugene McCarthy on one side who was very anti-war. I believe we talked about him in great lengths in our Running Mates episode about, about 72. And you have, I believe, George, George McGovern, too, right? Mm-hmm. And Humphrey is kind of, he's hewing to the LBJ tune on civil rights and Vietnam. Do we agree with, I, I mean, how do we, how are you separating Humphrey's like views on Vietnam is I guess my question. I think part of it is that Nixon expanded the war anyway, <laughs> right? You're, you're not going to elect a president who is going to immediately end the war in Vietnam. But Nixon was like, you know, not only maintained or increased like you know, the level of bombing and, and troops, but he also expanded the war into Cambodia and kind of Laos. And, you know, Humphrey probably would have done this too. You know, he wasn't going to take George McGovern's stance on the war anytime soon, I don't think. But yeah, I, I think, and, and again, I think that's, I feel like that's just his version of triangulation in a way, right? Yeah. He, he was going to let the sort of like pill of civil rights and in some cases welfare go down easier for maybe skeptics of his approach 
by sort of waving the flag and being sort of like supporting the Vietnam War more than a McGovern or a McCarthy. Yes. I, I've just been I've been trying to like balance these because I, I read about this like secret meeting Humphrey had with like these college students. Mm. And it turns out that there were like journalists secretly at, like recording it or in the room. And in it like Humphrey kind of has like a Nixonian rant and it's like college students are using Vietnam as just like an escape. Like they're mm. they're using it as a I think he used the word escapism. And like they're mm. ignoring the real problems and very Nixonian, right? It's like the silent mm. majority is behind this war. It's like I, right, I've yeah. been getting letters from people who support it. Which, you know, didn't make me feel as positive about him. Sure. Uh, I mean, Frank Sinatra kind of campaigned for him, you know. <laughs> yeah, Frank Sinatra was a Democrat until Ronald Reagan started running as a Republican. I, I struggled to actually find a lot about Humphrey's views on like racial issues he was sort of a last minute candidacy in many ways he was but he was like he was like the point man for johnson on civil rights like he kind of took the ball and ran with it and is generally considered to that be have like for the time certainly very progressive views on it like he actually thought there should be like a marshall plan style effort in urban centers to help prevent violence between blacks and whites basically okay yeah, it's good we have a Humphrey fan here. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't I don't know a ton about him. All right, let's talk about Gore. Sure, we, we we've done a good job not actually mentioning like Nixon, uh, but it's pretty hard to talk about Gore without talking about just like the utter disaster that is the Bush presidency. And mm-hmm. I have very little doubt in my mind that Gore handles just those four to eight years better. Mm-hmm. So I had, I can make the case that Gore would be a good president. And I think you've made a case that Humphrey that would be a good president. Would you disagree with that? Do you think Gore would not have been a good president? No, I, I think he would have been fine. Yeah, I think he would have been fine. How do we decide who would have made the better president? <laughs> Honestly, I, I made the case for Humphrey. I can make a case for Gore, too. Which is that I think that I don't know how stable Humphrey presidency would actually be. Honestly, like you, you could see the creation of like a I mean, there was already creation of a third party it was George Wallace's American Independent Party. <laughs> But I actually think you could see like an even more extreme reaction to a lot of Humphrey's civil rights efforts and like generally more liberal positioning on, on social and welfare issues. And Nixon, for all of his faults, at least, you know, paid lip service to those things. You know, right. he also kind of inaugurated the, you know, law and order sort of dog whistle campaigning. But I think there's there's an argument to be made that in some ways, like, Certainly, fiscally, Nixon was like more liberal than Carter. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. If that, if those are the issues that really matter to you, and mostly making an anti-Humphrey case now, but the pro-Gore case, I think, is that like we probably don't go to Iraq. <laughs> my, my thought on Gore is, I think I am sold on the idea that it is more important that Al Gore is president than it is that Humphrey is president. Yeah, I, I think. I would agree. Which is almost answering the question. It's not so much an endorsement of Gore, though. It's more of a, like, Humphrey... My takeaway is kind of you need the lessons of, like, 68 through 76 mm-hmm. to, like, get a better America, even mm-hmm. though that involves some, like, shady stuff. Yeah. I don't know what we learned mm-hmm. that we didn't already learn between 2001 and 2009. Mm-hmm. And I don't see Gore making, I don't know, I don't see a lot of policy differences between like Humphrey and Nixon in the end, like by the at the end of the day, when all is said and done, whereas I definitely see policy differences that could impact like 20 to 30 years between Gore yeah. and Bush, which is ironic because like Nixon and Humphrey is like a huge contrast. And at the time, Gore v. Bush was not. It was like a very boring mm-hmm. contrast between them. Yeah. Uh, are, are you familiar with Matthew Iglesias? <laughs> yes. 
of, of Vox or formerly of Vox? Formerly of Vox, yeah. He's, you know, a, a little controversial. I think kind of unjustly so. But somebody asked him what he thinks would happen if Al Gore was president. And I think this was like a, a half tongue-in-cheek answer, but his answer was basically that, unfortunately, 9-11 still happens. Right. Al Gore has to do something in Afghanistan because of that, but he probably resists the urge to go into Iraq. That said, there are a whole bunch of other issues he probably loses to John McCain in 2004. McCain probably mishandles the economy, has to triangulate on sort of like some climate issues and other issues and all of that. And then in 2008, in the midst of a recession, the populist hero Donald Trump decides to run for the Democratic what? nomination <laughs> with Barack Obama as his running mate. No. <laughs> and ends up winning. I don't think that would happen. <laughs> you, you had me. I, I, I'm not sure I'd be sold on Gore losing re-election in 2004. It is a close enough election that I think it could go that way. It could. I don't know. I, I think we're kind of veering off the point, which yeah. is my fault. But like, I, I think that um, it's just very hard for a party to win four presidential elections in a row. That is true. Um, that is true. <laughs> <laughs> that said, we're, we're at a point where I'm comfortable with like, it would have prevented ex-presidency. And I think I'm okay saying Al Gore should go ahead. Okay. Plus I, climate change. He would have done way more on climate change. Right. You have a turning point in the next like 20 years there that you don't get mm. with Humphrey. I, I do. I wish Humphrey could have gone further. Yeah. But yeah, Gore is more important to have in the White House than mm. Humphrey. I, I would say that. So we're giving it to Gore. Mm-hmm. Poor Humphrey. All right. <laughs> well, let's move on to another contest of equals. We have number five seed Thomas Jefferson versus number four seed Mitt Romney. <laughs> thomas jefferson he so, wishes yeah go these, on these guys are literally separated by like 200 years in yes. time so uh, thomas jefferson this is our only election from the 1700s we have in here uh he was democratic republican former secretary of state he lost the election of 1796 to federalist john adams jefferson got 47 percent of the vote like we said you know, that's not worth very much because no one could vote in the 1700s. But he became vice president out of this. This was a pre-12th Amendment election. Issues were French Revolution. Federalists were seen as kind of monarchists in a way. And, you know, did we agree with Hamilton's economic plan? Adams seemed apathetic at best, and Jefferson did not. That's Jefferson. Yeah, so Mitt Romney was the Republican nominee in 2012, where he lost to Barack Obama, winning 47.2% of the popular vote. He was, at that point, the former governor of Massachusetts. He's, of course, currently a senator from Utah. Guy gets around. You know, this was kind of a, an interesting... There were, I feel like there was really no one key issue to this election. I feel like there was, a, there was a lot of talk about the federal budget and specifically, you know, welfare entitlement programs and, you know, Obamacare, of course, and what to do with those, how to fund them, how to not fund them, how to cut them, how to tax people. And there was also some foreign policy talk as well. There are lots of Republicans today, actually, who are being very smug about Romney's warnings about Russian belligerents and Obama's subsequent dismissal of them. But even if Mitt Romney had been elected president, he would not have been around as president to deal with the current war so yeah you know it was a remarkably unsexy election in 2012 yes i, I remember it well so jefferson romney who, i mean i, I <laughs> <laughs> what do we do i respect mitt romney a great deal <laughs> but i feel like you have to go with thomas jefferson here i guess my question is thomas jefferson becomes president massively <laughs> like four years later big deal president mm -hmm. uh he, he gets it anyway D does having this kind of 
four years of Adams. I think you learn a lot in those four years. You do. Kind of go both ways on this. As I really don't like John Adams, but I think the Adams-Jefferson transition is one of the most underratedly important parts in American history. It is, I would agree. And I made a pretty strong case for Mitt Romney in round one that his presidency would have... It's the only situation in which you can get like a very competent administrator at the very end of COVID, where he does not run, need to run for re-election or anything. Yeah, assuming he went, he does win re-election the first time. Right. I mean, I, I guess I see the Romney presidency as more or less a repeat of the Obama presidency in so many ways. Like, I, I don't see a ton of substantive policy advances. Well, and maybe this is a moot point because of 2016. How concerned are you about, like, the Tea Party influence in his administration? He himself was not really a Tea Partier, but he was forced right. to pivot right to win the nomination. And actually, even though he basically created Obamacare light when he was governor of Massachusetts, was forced to kind of repudiate that and, and run to the right. You could end up with a very fiscally conservative presidency. I mean, because that is the only thing Mitt Romney is actually consistent on that election. Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I think that's true. I just, so little happens in terms of domestic policy between 2013 and 2017. Mm-hmm. I, I, I struggle to make a positive domestic case for the Obama presidency. He doesn't get another Supreme Court nominee. He doesn't get very significant legislation through. Like Mm -hmm. the the biggest domestic news is that the government shuts down and then almost defaults a couple times. Foreign affairs, I think you definitely get more. But I I, I mean, God, with a Romney presidency, you probably get a more. I mean, the TPP probably actually goes through. (laughs) That's true. I don't know. That is no. I think I think you're onto something. I don't. Do you think he approaches sort of like the rise of ISIS any differently? No, I don't I don't see Romney as particularly interventionist. Yeah. I would love to and I'll probably end up doing this tonight is like you know how like people always write who would be in this person's cabinet like type post before they're elected. Like I'd be fascinated to see who people would think would have been in like Mitt Romney's cabinet. Yeah. Because I feel like that probably answers the most questions about his foreign policy. I feel like, or, and maybe this is kind of like wishful thinking, but I feel like a Romney presidency is kind of like, it's almost, it's kind of technocratic in a way, in the sense where it's like, I feel like you get like a couple CEOs. Now you're selling me. <laughs> right? Because I remember when like McCain was running, people were like, oh, he's going to pick like Meg Whitman as a secretary of state. But I, I don't know. I'd also be like someone who's like more of an expert in America's early foreign policy. I am curious what a Jeff Jefferson president, like, because there, there's the quasi-war with France while Adams is president. I'm curious with Jefferson, who was considered like a Francophile, how that would look. <laughs> mm. Adams has a I, lot of bad policies. Yeah. And I guess most of Jefferson's, I mean, what, uh, Louisiana Purchase is probably like the most important thing Jefferson did in the long run. Yeah. Which I guess happens, I mean, that's 1803. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm more trying to give Romney a chance, which I think he has. I think you could make a pretty compelling argument that Romney, because Jefferson's going to become president anyway, but I don't have a problem giving it to Jefferson <laughs> over Romney. Me neither. Uh, is, that, is that how we're leaning? Yes, I think so. Yeah. I made the case last episode that I wanted to see how Romney did, but mm-hmm. he, he drew a pretty rough card there. He did, yeah. All right. Our second to last matchup of this episode, we have number six seed, Michael Dukakis versus number three seed, Henry Clay in 1844. Uh, Dukakis, he was the Democratic governor of Massachusetts. He went up against Republican Vice President George H.W. Bush in 1988. 
this was just a strange, strange election in so many ways. <laughs> Dukakis was painted as a Massachusetts liberal, kind of soft on crime, you know, supported the ACLU. Ooh. Dukakis ended up getting 46% of the vote. He lost to, to lost to Bush. I Like I said last, last round, I have so little to say about this election. It is Dukakis. He's out there. Yeah, it, I, I feel like you look at both those guys speak, and I feel like neither of them would like last a minute in like modern politics. Yeah. Dukakis, I don't think, is a particularly charismatic person. No. And Bush, I think, is kind of cold. But yeah. anyway, uh, let's talk about Henry Clay, part three. This was his third attempt at the presidency, <laughs> which came in 1844. He was the Whig nominee who lost to Democrat James K. Polk with 48% of the vote. A big issue was the expansion of slavery, namely whether to do it or not, and of course the annexation of Texas, and also whether to expand slavery into Texas. Clay was like basically against the annexation of Texas, he kind of like waffled on it, and you know, he's like, well, I personally, if you ask me personally what I would want, oh, I don't really care, but I think it's kind of a risky move for us. And that kind of confused a lot of people and led them to not really want to vote for him. And again, with, you know, his other positions on Canada and or in the Oregon country, as they called it, and, and things like that. So, yeah, he uh, his some of his background, though, I kind of sped through that. He was a representative from Kentucky. Then he was Speaker of the House. He was a senator from Kentucky, Secretary of Senator John Quincy Adams. He, he's quite old or relatively speaking. We, we kind of debunked that. He just looks old as hell. Yeah, he, <laughs> he, he does look kind of skeletal, doesn't he? He was born in 1777. This was in 1844. So he was in his late 60s. He will outlive Polk, is what matters. He will. Yes, that is true. Anyway, that's Henry Clay. We got a very impassioned pro-Henry Clay email in our inbox. How, who doesn't? Yeah. <laughs> Um, th- this is an easy one. I'm, I'm Henry Clay all the way. Yeah, I, I think so, too. I have nothing to say about Dukakis. Dukakis yeah. won just by virtue of being up against Ho- Herbert Hoover. I, I feel like Dukakis is... Ev- everything that Republicans in the 80s said Democrats were is what Dukakis was, in a sense. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like you're just kind of like a dead fish of a candidate. Yeah. And I, I'm sure he is a lovely man. He's still alive. Apparently yeah. people donate like their Thanksgiving turkey leftovers. And he makes soup with it. I'm sure he's a great guy. For himself? <laughs> I think I, he probably donates it. I actually have no yeah. idea. Okay. But, yeah. 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 All right. Clay moves on. All right. Let's move to our final matchup of this half. Okay. We have number 10 seed Jimmy Carter versus number two seed John Kerry. Jimmy Carter, he lost re-election in 1980 to Ronald Reagan. He had been president, but Jimmy Carter only got 41% of the vote. Jimmy Carter had a very unfortunate presidency. A lot of things uh, not necessarily in his control happened. There was the Iran hostage crisis. There was economic stagflation. There was the energy crisis. Basically, Carter ran against Reagan's economic policies, but the problem is the economy under Carter was terrible, and Carter didn't have, like, a good plan. Carter just kind of, like, dithered on a lot of issues like the ERA, human rights, uh, detente with the Soviets. Not a very strong four years as president. Yeah, uh, so his opponent is John Kerry, who was the Democrat nominee in 2004, and he was a longtime senator from Massachusetts, who of course made his name in the anti-war movement as a Vietnam veteran against the war. But this was, you know, 40, 30 years after all that. Um, He lost to George W. Bush with 48% of the vote. The last election, in fact, where a Republican won the popular vote. Kerry was very critical of the Bush administration's war on terror, specifically the Iraq war, but that didn't really help Kerry too much. He was 
speaking of sort of, uh, you know, caricatures of Democrats, was treated as sort of a Massachusetts liberal. You know, George Bush, he was the guy you wanted to get a beer with. The old the old guy from Texas, John Kerry, he was an elite married to the heir to the, you know, the Heinz ketchup. Which you can't <laughs> trust him. Of course, never mind Bush's generational wealth, of course. But yeah, that, that was... That was John Kerry. I feel like this is also kind of an easy one. Carter advanced despite himself, just like Dukakis, right? I feel like we can make a much more positive case for John Kerry Mm -hmm. overall. John Kerry, like, I think I said this last time, he's like one of the most underrated political figures of the 21st century. He's he's been around. He's been, like, doing stuff ever since, you know? And yet he's probably the presidential nominee in the 2000s that the fewest people remember. Yeah, I, I would agree. I feel like 2004 in general is kind of like a memory hold election. And I feel like part of that's probably just because 2008 was so historic. Mitt Romney's still very relevant. And of course, 2016 and 2020 were the two most recent ones. Yeah. And 2000 was, of course, the most controversial. And 2004 gets kind of like mixed up in that bunch. Yeah. But yeah. I think he's like a very competent administrator and like statesman. And I think if, if there was one thing I think the Bush administration was lacking, maybe not one thing. <laughs> They were lacking in competency and, I think, foresight <laughs> and were, were, I think, very ideologically driven. And I, I do I think Kerry, like, immediately ends the war on Iraq and, like, completely reverses the excesses of the war on terror? Probably not. Do I think he's probably sort of a calmer and steadier hand, maybe prevents some of the worst abuses? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, I, I think I think that's easy. Are we giving it to Kerry? Mm-hmm. Well, we, we separated a lot of, you know, wheat from the chaff. Yes, I would say so. This was the big separation episode, I think. Like you said, we from the chaff. The the ones who skated by on like right. an easy, weak opponent, they had to go after some, some proven, well, I say proven winners. They all lost their election, so I guess not really. But anyway, that concludes round two, part one, half one, whatever you want to call it. Um, we've now gone from 32 candidates to 24 candidates. Any surprising results thus far? Yeah, I, I got to say, I was surprised by the Gore versus Humphrey one. I actually went into this assuming we were going to go with Humphrey, but then the more we unpacked it, I felt more inclined to say Gore, you know? That was the most surprising to me. I honestly haven't thought about it that much, but I was surprised how much I was able to talk myself out of Humphrey considering I I like him so much. (laughs) Yes, that's what surprised me the most, (laughs) I I am my own worst enemy, I guess. In that regard, we I guess I'm surprised we haven't had a flip a coin yet. I, I am too. I, I thought Jefferson v. Romney would be a more interesting debate just because, mm-hmm. I don't know, you, you have so much more time with Jefferson, but it is truly like an apples to oranges comparison. And I, for better or worse, it, I think Thomas Jefferson deserves <laughs> to be remembered forever. And Mitt Romney yeah. deserves to be remembered for 100 years. <laughs> Well, it's it's like you say you have so much more time with him. It's like who was ever like you know what we like just like really missed out on was the Romney administration. Well, yeah, it's like <laughs> I feel like we miss. I feel like we missed out on like Hubert Humphrey. I feel like we missed out on Hillary to some Clinton extent Thomas E. Dewey. Yeah, Hillary Clinton too. So, and to some extent like Thomas Dewey even. But like I don't necessarily think we missed out on on the Romney administration. Yeah, that, that's that's fair. All right. Well, any other matches? You know, now that we've done all this, any matches that you're looking forward to you think will be more controversial and might even elicit the fabled coin flip? So between these these eight we've just allowed to advance, we have we have a Henry Clay versus a John Kerry. That's the clay I feel not as strong about. I'm gonna I'm yeah. gonna be honest there. The earlier mm. clays I'm more with Jefferson v. Gore, yeah, I think could be yeah. quite a debate. 
Because our whole like thesis with gore is like the 2000 to 2008 period is very important to have gore wars. It's hard to say that we really need Jefferson in 1797 when we're going to get mm-hmm. him in you know 1801. Right. Th- those are the two I would watch in round three mm-hmm. from this this half. I don't know about mm-hmm. you. No, yeah, I, I definitely agree. But yeah, Gore v. Jefferson is the one I really don't know where I where we're going to land. I, I have like Bush versus Bryan, though, I think will be pretty interesting, too. So Clinton v. Parker, we're not excited for. No, no, I think that's uh, that's that's probably going to be a blowout. Parker somehow slided through again. <laughs> lucky, lucky bastard. And he's still an 11 seed. That's very funny to me. I know. <laughs> well, you folks listening at home are just going to have to in the next episode, really the next two episodes. Why not listen to the whole damn thing while you're at it to find out? <laughs> be sure to subscribe to this podcast wherever podcasts are found. Or, of course, you can find it on thepostwriter.com, where you can also stay tuned with our live updating bracket at thepostwriter.com slash floorfight. See how each candidate fared as we whittle them down over the course of this series. Tweet at us at thepostwriter or email us at contact at thepostwriter.com to let us know what picks you would have made, where we've made some mistakes, and how wrong I am about Hubert Humphrey. You know, maybe I am. Maybe you were one of those college students he ranted towards or something. <laughs> and maybe you were like, hey, kid, you sitting in your ivory 2022 tower, you don't realize how bad he actually was. I was there. Maybe I've been tricked by so much pro-Humphrey propaganda I've read over the past year. So I don't know. M- Mitt Romney, p- please call me. I- I'd like <laughs> to talk about your presidency. Um, I'm open. <laughs> Email us. Yes. Thanks. That would be tremendous. I'd love to hear Mitt Romney compare himself to Jefferson. I know. That'd be incredible. But (laughs) if that happens, we are definitely recording a special episode about it. But (laughs) until then, we will see you next time for round two, part two here on Floor Fight.